0: Hi, family. All right. This is the second time I've had the pleasure of being up here. Last time I talked about a method of meditation, and we're going to start there. So if you'd bow your heads, or however you like to pose yourself for prayer. God... I can't, but you can. Yes. Jesus, I can't, but you did. Yes. Spirit, I can't, but you will. Yes. Thank you that that is true. Amen. Amen. All right. So, um, Pastor, give me. We don't need to... If you would put the scripture up, the English one, I don't... My French is terrible. <laughs> uh, un petit peu. Uh, un petit petit peu. There we go. Uh, this is one heck of a passage. First time I read it, I was like, Pastor, why did you give this to me? It's like, oh, I see why you're going on vacation. You, you want to skip this one. I don't, I don't blame him. I'm, I'm pretty grateful, though, because... Uh, it forced me to learn, you know. Um, this scripture is difficult because we're so disconnected from it. We're reading English here. This was not written in English. In fact, most Bible historians think that Genesis was probably an oral tradition that was eventually written down, kind of like uh, the Odyssey. You know, it was an oral tradition that Homer passed on, and eventually someone's like, We've got to write this down, right? Kind of like that. Very different. God's a little bit more active in this story, I think. Um, but the other part that's difficult about it is we're so disconnected from this culture and from the language. For instance, this scripture, if you read the original texts, which we have some from like the second century, there's no vowels, there's no indication of how to pronounce the words. So the way you would learn to pronounce the words is you would stand next to your rabbi and watch them as they point at the word and say it. That's the only way you could learn this material. We don't approach this text like that. Just don't. So how much of it do we miss because we don't understand where it comes from? I bring that up because this is a text that is kind of the classic of something I brought up last time, which is it's incredibly important for us to read our neighbor's Bibles, right? Our Bibles are fine, you know? They're interesting. Well, we certainly find them interesting because they're about us at the end of the day, right? But there are as many Bibles in this room as there are people, right? How you read the text, how you interpret the text. It's going to be different for each and every one of us. So kind of here's what I mean. Um, God doesn't change, right? He's there. It's fixed. But how each of us experience God, how each of us understand God, and how each of us love God is inherently tied to our individuality. But God also tells us that to love him, you've got to love your neighbor. So, while we're individuals that are made in the image of God, we are required to live in community to complete that. Let's put it another way. Your life and my life are threads. Sorry, I keep moving from the mic and I know better. <clears throat> your, my, your life, my life, they're threads that pass through time. They have length, they have width, they have depth. And God takes these threads all every one of these threads, and he weaves them together. And this fabric that comes out of it is a representation of the peace that God desires for us on earth. The word that, the Hebrew word would be shalom, more of, um, it's not just peace, it's like right living, continually growing together. It's a healing agent, it binds us together. But the problem is, and we all know this, is that this fabric often breaks, falls apart. Or, it gets pulled apart. Uh, I would prefer to skip this part. (laughs) But I think we have to um, acknowledge something. Basically, I think we're duty-bound to observe failures, acknowledge them, and then to learn from them. So Chris, if you would go to the next slide. There we go. The curse of Canaan. This passage has been used to set up a social hierarchy. This passage has been used to justify prolific acts of abuse. In this scripture we see that Ham, one of the sons of Noah, is put below the other sons. If we read into chapter 10, the next chapter, it's just a bunch of genealogy. It's pretty boring if you're not interested. But what you see is that all of Ham's descendants end up living in what we would now call like the Middle East, Saudi Arabia area, well the Arabian Peninsula rather, and Egypt, Africa. On down to Ethiopia. So if you were to interpret this a certain way, and especially if you were to have a melanin deficiency like me, you could you could come to this conclusion that those people over there belong to me. They are my servants. The West African slave trade is not the only place that this has been verbatim used to justify. And that's not even talking about pulling apart fabric anymore. We're talking shearing. We're talking systematic abuse. Thank you, Pastor, for this one. All right. But the best part of this that I love, and this is a very Christian thing to do, is to take Old Testament and bring it to Jesus. We're naturally inclined to do so, right? And we are all called to be slaves. But who are we called to be slaves to? Slaves to Christ. So I get very confused how someone could use this to justify slavery when Christ is like, please, (laughs) you're not even a slave to me yet. Don't tell someone else to be a slave. So now, let's actually get into the text a little bit more in detail rather than the history. Let's move on to the image and the beautiful story being told here. Part of the problem with Genesis, besides the fact that we don't know the language, we don't know the culture, we don't understand where it comes from really, is um, it often doesn't give us much detail. It doesn't seem like it gives us much detail, right? So let's, um, let's go over the story again. of we'll You'll see where I'm coming from. So this starts with uh, the origin of viticulture. You can go black now, blank on that. Um, Noah sows a vineyard, and he reaps the rewards of his work. Has a little too much fun with his work. Ends up being inebriated. Ends up naked inside of his tent. Ham sees Noah, doesn't cover Noah's nakedness while Ham's brothers do cover Noah's nakedness out of respect. And when he awakes, Noah discovers what happened and gets upset and he curses Canaan. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I have a bunch of questions. You know, we don't get the details here. It's not woven to us, or at least it doesn't seem like it. How did Ham know that Noah was naked? If Noah was in the tent, did he leave the entrance to the tent open? Was Ham following him because he saw Noah stumbling around? He's like, ooh, this is going to be good. I want to see what this is. We don't know. Nor do we know why Noah got drunk. There's a lot of interpretation on this part. Uh, I went to the Talmud for a lot of this um, resource gathering. And there's a lot of reasons that have been postulated as to why Noah even got there to begin with. One of the ideas is that he was in despair at witnessing so much death. Everyone he knew, besides his family, was gone. We don't usually think about this story, but you wonder when the rains were coming down, who came to the boat and knocked on the door? Hmm. I can understand why you'd want a drink or two after that. I could feel that. Or another interpretation is maybe Noah's trying to return to the time before knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were naked. They were fine. He's trying to restore that. In his inebriated mind, that might have made some sense, I, I guess, postulating here. Or perhaps it's just a misjudged situation. He overindulged. They got away from him. And yeah, he went a little too far. Short story is, I have no clue why Noah got drunk, really at all. Regardless of how that happened, the state of affairs led to a particular situation. By seeing his father in this way, Ham was being disrespectful, for sure. And I think we can all agree that there's a measure of shame when you see your parent in such a state. It wasn't just the nakedness, it's the way he was. Perhaps why he was. Maybe Ham knew why he was that way. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. <sighs> but then, him seeing Noah and then telling his brothers, like, that kind of makes sense. Brothers like to gossip, gossip, I get it. But why does Noah get so irate? I mean, he changes the social order. He essentially disinherits his son. says, You're my second son, but you now you're the third. Well, That's because most Protestant interpretations of this scripture tend to lean on the fact that Noah got drunk. That that was the sin that opened further sin. And that Ham didn't quite respect his father. And I can buy all of that. That's fine by me. But if we read the Talmud, there's a very different interpretation that makes so much more sense to me now that I've gotten there. So... Since we have children here um, In this vein of interpretation that comes out of the Talmud the word to see is a euphemism kind of like um, I could say I know my wife biblically. You know what I mean? You're tracking with me. That is what to see means It's a euphemism, but it includes an act of violence We have proof of this I was really kind of hoping Rita was going to be here because Rita knows pretty well how to make this situation come about that happened. Let me put it this way: If you don't want a bull to reproduce, what do you do? Snip, snip. That's the implication here. How do we know this? Well, Noah ends up cursing Canaan, who is the fourth son of Ham. How many sons does Noah have? Three, apparently Noah can't have a fourth son. He's taking it out on Ham's fourth son. Starting to see a picture a little bit here. So now you can imagine that this this text looks a lot different. It reads different. And we can understand now why Noah, A, he knew what happened. I don't care how inebriated you are, when you wake from that stupor, you're going to know. There's going to be some physical evidence to back it up. Hmm. We also see um, motivation for Noah to curse his own bloodline, basically, right? This is interesting. This is where some parallels start to come up that we've got to start getting into. This passage isn't sufficient. We have to see the picture. Because what Noah does is very similar to what God did after Adam and Eve sinned. Just like God thought that he had made a mistake when making humanity, Noah curses his own creation. Right? He created these sons. I mean, we know that through Christ they were created, but you get the gist. So let's take a step back. Let's go back to what's happening here, how the story is actually being woven, perhaps. Again, this is my interpretation, but It's probably not right, but I hope it's close. Most importantly, I hope it helps you think about this differently. So there's some direct parallels between the flood story and the creation story. So let's, I'm gonna hop around really quick, the creation story. First day, second day, God does some cool things. Third day, God separates water from land. He draws a demarcation line, right? Fourth day, God lets lights appear in the sky, separating day from night. Fifth day, God fills the oceans with fish and other life. And then sixth day, God creates all living things on the ground, including humanity, which I like to think of as a nice reminder that we are humans. Or sorry, we are animals, we just happen to be humans, right? And then God blesses humanity. And most importantly, not just blessing, he says, you humans have a role here. You have a job. We are to be stewards of all the animals and all the living things. Then God plants the Garden of Eden and he establishes two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? I know you're like, Ryan, come on, we've heard this story a million times. It's important, I promise. Then, then God tells the humans, don't eat anything from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't have time to ponder why he didn't say and the tree of life. I'll let you th- sit on that one for later. Then God tells humans, Don't eat anything from that tree. But eventually, one being convinces another being, and another being convinces another being. And now humans have knowledge that they didn't have before. They're closer to God. They've taken that step themselves, and they realize their nakedness. Everyone in that situation had a choice Adam had a choice, Eve had a choice, the tempter had a choice and they all chose to behave the way they did. So now the humans know that they're naked. They turn from God. They hide from God. And obviously God finds this rather untenable. It's just not a good situation. So he removes humanity from the garden, but he also takes the rest of the earth and makes it into a garden as well. But there's just no return for us humans to the Garden of Eden. The way is shut. So now let's look at Noah's story. What is the flood story telling us? If we pick up from the third day of the creation story, right, Noah, God, brings earth back to the third day, right? He covers the whole earth in water. There is no separation anymore. So we're back to the third day, except there's this little boat with some life on it. The ark eventually hits land, but Noah has to wait until God says it's okay to go. Again, waiting for God to say, and it is good. Now go. Then, Noah offers a sacrifice to God and creates an altar to do so. Uh, I find this, that part of the passage immensely fascinating because, I mean, depending on which part you're reading, he only had so many animals. You know, like, do we lose some species there? Or... Probably not. But then we get my favorite part is that after this um, sacrifice that Noah gives to God God's like, mmm, that's good stuff. That smells delightful. And God tells himself just himself that he will never wipe humanity off the earth again. Now that's just to himself. But then he turns to Noah and addresses him. And he gives him the command to be fruitful and multiply just like Adam and much like Adam and Eve, he says, Hey, all the animals and plants are given to you in human stewardship, your role of responsibility. But then God adds an addendum here. God also explains that if a human is killed, there will be an account for that blood. He didn't say that at the beginning. Not that Cain and Cain's murder or Abel's murder was like okay because of that. But God's making it clear here. There will be an account for this. I love that. We'll get to why that's cool later. Ah, so then God outwardly tells them, hey, I'm never going to destroy the earth by a flood again. I find it kind of interesting that he says, just by flood. He doesn't say, like, I could still rain the heavens down and there could be asteroids, but not a flood. But really, the important thing here that I've never noticed about this text is God gives up his power, he makes a sacrifice. He says, I won't do this again. That's a choice that God gets to make, right? And he chose to not do it. He made a sacrifice. Hmm. And then God sets a rainbow in the sky to remind himself again. It's not to remind us. It's so that God can see the rainbow and be like, all right, I'm not going to do that again. But we get the joy of seeing a rainbow and being like, thank God that's not going to happen again. Interesting little side note, a lot of ancient literature like of Gilgamesh, the Iliad, a bunch of things that are written around the same time. Rainbows are there all the time, but they are always omens of doom. Always. In the Iliad, basically, it depends on which direction you see this, the, the rainbow. I was about to say the sunrise. It's always in the same direction. Um, but like if it's to the west of you, it means doom is impending in a certain fashion. If it's to the east, it's going to come this way superstitions, right, basically. Same thing with Epic of Gilgamesh. It just means like it's about to get real and not in a good way sort of thing. So it's powerful that this story circumvents that. It takes human conventional wisdom of the time and says, that's not what God's doing here. This is different. God has set this differently for us. Hmm now I lost my place. There we go, sacrificing himself. But here's the deal, the covenant that God gives to Noah and his sons doesn't erase the fact that humans are still humans, and we're just going to do whatever we want. You know, earlier, God talks about, since they were children, their ways are wicked. You know, there's just something about us that, right? <laughs> I love that the mother laughed at that one first. Yeah. <laughs> um it doesn't change the fact that we're fraught with sin and that this sin will always creep back into the garden on earth as long as we're around with it, right? So let me get to Noah. He leaves the boat, becomes a gardener, cultivates the land. Interestingly, um, Hebrew tradition holds that the the fruit that Adam and Eve ate was a grape because it connects to this passage. There's a repetition here that we're seeing that, again, since we're speaking English, we just don't know. Um, American or Western culture typically thinks it's an apple. That goes back to a translation error in the ninth century, I, I learned. Julie, I looked that up for you. Um, we were talking about that, that's why I mentioned it. But that has really not much to do with anything, except that there's a pattern being established here. And we're going to really redefine that pattern so you can see it a little bit more clearly. So Noah's cultivating the land, he's cultivating fruit, let's say, just like the fruit that that Adam was able to consume in the Garden of Eden. He overindulges, he becomes naked, just like Adam and Eve, before they ate of the tree. And now Noah's completely exposed. And because of this, I think we can finally see what Ham's motivation is, right? He heard the promise that God gave to Noah, You know, inherit the earth. Apparently he thought like, well, if um, I can increase my inheritance if I act a certain way. Or to nip it in the bud, as we say colloquially. So if that is what happened, it's a pretty strong motivation to do what he did. God blessed Noah to be fruitful. And Ham took away his ability to be fruitful. But this time, it's not God who delivers the curse, right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that's God's story. Here we see Noah trying to establish order in society, right? It's a human delivering a curse to another human. Like I mentioned earlier, like God cursed his creation, Noah's cursing his own creation as well. Shem becomes exalted. Japheth, Japheth. Number two, and Ham gets moved down to number three. Uh, And'll we'll, you can see later if you go on reading that Shem is the ultimate ancestor of Abraham or Abram, I should say. <sighs> so if Noah flips the positions around, he changes the hierarchy, if you will, and he removes privileges from each one of his sons to a degree so here 's the question: We have two curses done by two different beings against humans and the Bible really likes threes. It really likes to work in threes. Especially if you read in the Old Testament, if you see something happens in a trio, it wasn't an accident. There's some deep meaning there. We don't need to get into all the meanings because, good Lord, we do not have time. But what happened, what's the third part of this act? Well, in Genesis, it's when Abram is found, like Noah, to be a wise, noble man who walks in the way of the Lord. What does God do to him? He says, oh, you know your son Isaac? Go sacrifice him to me. All right? So what does Abram do? He does it. Well, he walks towards it. He walks up that mountain. His son asks him, where's the goat? He's like, ah, God will give us a goat. Don't worry about it. And God did give him a goat, Right? So we have this picture of God's grace that's given to us in triplicate, just in Genesis alone. So to keep pointing at the text like it's here. So if we, if we were to just look at this text and say, oh, this justifies my ability to subjugate another human, I think you're making up your own story. You've created your own gospel at that point. But now we see in threefold how God's reminding us that there needs to be a sacrifice for sin. It has to happen. There's no way around it. We have three versions of the story that are told in succession. So then here's where the Talmud drops off because they don't really care too much about what Christ did. So let's think of Christ's story. He comes to earth as a child. We don't really know much about his childhood, but when his ministry starts, what initiates it? It's a rhetorical question actually but baptism just like on the third day just like on the third day when water and land were separated Christ's baptism hearkens to that he's submerged in death and he came out of it oh, it doesn't stop there don't you worry and then what? Well, then what happens? Well, then there's a blessing, right? This follows the pattern of the creation story and the flood story. But how's the blessing come? It's a dove. Just like the dove returned to Noah to say, hey, there's hope. The spirit descended on Christ in the form of a dove to say, here's my hope. Ah, And then Christ experiences life as a human. He is tempted and he is able to make his choices. Just like Adam, Eve and the serpent had their choices, just like Noah, Japheth, Shem and Ham. Pressed. that I remember that. That they had their choices, Christ had his choices as well. And then, like Abram, Jesus walks to his sacrifice. But, instead of being saved, Jesus fulfills the sacrifice. In the previous two stories, a curse comes after transgression. Transgression. But does does Christ curse humanity for their sin? If we were keeping the pattern alive, when Christ was on the cross, he would not have said, forgive them for they do not know what they do. (sighs) Christ should be cursing them. But he doesn't. Christ offers us peace through his death. He breaks the cycle. I said, this is done. This is finished. And now here we are, and we get to look at this story and see, you do have it for us. You are writing this story for us over generations. I mean, I personally love this process that I went through to get here because I didn't know any of this. You know, I spent about, I don't know, two months reading up on this, trying to figure it out, wrestle with it. God bless Pastor for doing this every week. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Jesus walked with God like Noah did. Jesus was found righteous in God's eyes, just like Noah. And Jesus is the ultimate source of saving humanity. Kind of like Noah was spared just to keep humanity on earth. Do you feel different about this passage all of a sudden? It it changes Genesis, the whole book. And I know pastor's gonna be summarizing floods and gates next week, so you're gonna get a whole nother version of it next week, right? But I think the beauty of this story is found in its eventual completion. The repetition. I mean, that's what we like about music. We hear the chord progression. We know where the next note's gonna land because we've heard the song before. And when you're singing along with that song, you know, oh, you feel good, right? That's what God's doing with us right here. He's like, I've known the whole time. And I'm sorry that it took you a little while to get there, Ryan Gorgle, but you're finally starting to pick up on the tune, so let's go already. So I take this as solace and comfort that while life is difficult, relationships are broken, systems tear us apart, we often do most of the work ourselves of breaking God's shalom. He's got us covered. And there's nothing we can do to change that. God, thank you so much that we can't. Thank you that you let us. You give us a chance to find more people, get them on the boat. Simply cannot thank you enough for that. Nor can we thank you enough for this community, these people we've been woven together with in your peace, that we could bring Shalom to Oak Park. If it could come to Oak Park, maybe it can come to Sacramento. If it comes to Sacramento, maybe even Yolo County will get on board. Just like a seed can grow and propagate over and over and over and cover the land, you give us that chance. I pray that you guide this community as we carry on your work. Amen.